If you're paying attention, you might have noticed that we didn't have our time of congregational prayer this morning like we normally do. And soon you'll see why, because we're going to do this after the sermon, and we're going to use this exact text that we're about to walk through to pray together. So this morning we are going to be in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. And the title of this sermon is Open the Eyes of My Heart. If you're a 90s kid like me, you're probably hearing that that song in your head right now. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. While we've spent the last three weeks walking through one of the greatest sentences of all time in verses 3 through 14, all one sentence. A sentence of praise from beginning to end, full of praise for each member of the Trinity and their role in salvation. God the Father predestines, elects, and adopts. He plans salvation. God the Son redeems, forgives, and unites through grace. He accomplishes salvation. And then God the Spirit assures, seals, and guarantees. He applies salvation. God is sovereign over it all, from beginning to end, to the praise of his glory. Now, if God is sovereign, there's probably no reason at all to pray, right? Because nothing we do really matters anyway, right? Not at all. In fact... This week's text, we're going to see exactly the opposite. Paul moves from this glorious sentence of praise for God's sovereignty straight into prayer. Hear this loud and clear. God is sovereign over all things, but he uses means. He uses you and he uses me to accomplish his plans. We are instruments in the Redeemer's hands used to do his will. I know that it's mysterious, but both of these are true. God is sovereign, and we're called to pray. I love what J.I. Packer says about this in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Packer says this on page one. He says, I do not intend to spend any time at all proving to you the general truth that God is sovereign in his world. There is no need. For I know that if you are a Christian, you believe this already. How do I know that? Because I know that if you are a Christian, you pray. And the recognition of God's sovereignty is the basis of your prayers. In prayer, you ask for things and give thanks for things. Why? Because you recognize that God is the author and source of all the good that you have had already and all the good that you hope for in the future. This is the fundamental philosophy of Christian prayer. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. When we are on our knees, we know that it is not we who control the world. It is not in our power, therefore, to supply our needs by our own independent efforts. If this is true, even of our daily bread, and the Lord's Prayer teaches us that it is, much more is it true 
of spiritual benefits. Do you see that? We pray precisely because we believe that God is sovereign and in control. We pray because he's the one with power to do something about our prayers. We pray believing that he's sovereign and that he uses means and that our prayers are those means. That's why James, in the same chapter of the Bible, can teach these two truths. James chapter 4, verse 2, he says, You do not have wine, because you do not ask. A couple verses later, same chapter, verses 13, and four, 13 to 15, he says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade, and make a profit. Yet... You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Then look at verse 15 very closely. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That's the spectrum, (laughs) this or, or that. If the Lord wills. So see this. James is saying... You should ask God for things, rightly. And God is completely sovereign over your life. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereign declarative will. Well, it's hard to follow the amazing sentence of praise in verses 3 through 14. Yet, Paul succeeds wonderfully with yet another truth-filled sentence of prayer. Again, all one sentence, verses 15 through 23. This is one long sentence with 169 words in the Greek text. No periods, pauses, or commas. So let's dive in. This is the word of the Lord. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Paul says, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule in authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So how does Paul pray? The basic structure of this text is actually pretty straightforward. So point one, Paul's thanksgiving. We'll see that in verses 15 and 16. And then point two, Paul's actual prayer in verses 17 through 23. Uh, Within that, we'll see that he prays for wisdom, revelation, and knowledge. We'll see that he prays for spiritual vision. 
to know three things, hope, riches, and power. So that's the the structure of our text and of the sermon today. So let's take a look back at point one, Paul's thanksgiving, verses 15 and 16. He starts out by saying, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So do you see the two reasons he's giving thanks for them in his prayers? Number one, because he's heard of their faith. And not just general faith, not just just vague faith. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the Ephesians lived in a hostile environment where paganism and political idolatry were rampant. Yet... They had faith in the Lord Jesus. This is something for Paul to be grateful for in his prayers. And this faith can be understood in two different ways. Number one, saving faith. They trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. And they were saved by grace through faith. But second, their faith was practical. They lived it out. We saw that in the book of Acts and how their faith actually affected the whole Ephesian economy. Amazing. Paul had heard about their faith. It's not a light that's put under a basket. It's not a a thing that's hidden. It's instead a city on a hill type of faith. And he's thanking God for them in prayer. And look at this next part. Verse 15. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and what? Your love toward all the saints. Do you remember what saints are? We talked about this in verse 1 of Ephesians 1. Saints are really holy people who have it all together, who we agree with on everything, who we get along well with, right? No. Saints are what? Christians. Saints are Christians. Christians who aren't saintly in and of themselves, but who are made saints through the righteousness of Christ. Okay? Now to the convicting part. Do you see what Paul is thanking God for here? The Ephesians' love toward all the saints. All the saints. I want to ask this question. Would Paul be able to pray this about us? To thank God for our faith in Jesus, both saving and practical, and for our love for all Christians. Do you have love toward all the saints? Now, Did the Ephesians do this perfectly? No. In fact, we see Paul needing to remind them and encourage them toward both of these things throughout the rest of the letter. But here's the deal. We can still give thanks to God for things that still need to grow in us. Like a farmer who sees tiny ears of corn growing on the stock and thanks God for them, even though they have a lot of maturing to do. Santa Cruz Baptist. I thank God for your faith in Jesus Christ 
and your love for all the saints. I thank God for other churches in this county. And I want to encourage us to grow in these things more and more together. And one of the ways we do that, one of the ways that that we love all the saints, is by interceding for all the saints, continually remembering them in our prayers. So pray for other churches. Pray for uh, other believers around town. Thank God for them. Love for the saints leads to prayer for them. That's what's happening in this text. And one commentator has pointed out that what Paul thanks God for here are actually the essential marks of a Christian. Look at this. Faith in Christ, love for the saints. Faith in Christ, love for all the saints. That's what a Christian is. Someone who has faith in the Lord Jesus and love for the saints. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says in John 13, right? John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Similarly, 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he, meaning Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Sinclair Ferguson says, Authentic Christianity always transforms both the Godward and the manward dimensions of life. Otherwise, our professions of faith are hollow. Faith in Jesus Christ and love for all the saints. True Christians have both a vertical and a horizontal change and transformation of life. So, that's how Paul begins his prayer in thanksgiving because of their faith and love. But what is the content of his prayer for them? Point two, Paul's prayer. Verses 17 through 23. Look with me first at verse 17. Here's the first part of what Paul actually prays for them. He says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. You see the Trinity again there? And he prays that the Ephesians would what? Would know God. That's his end goal, that they would know God. Isn't this instructive? Do you think that that Paul was unaware of their practical needs or of the amount of persecution that they were probably experiencing there in Ephesus? No. He was probably very aware of their circumstances. He lived with them for three years, remember. But he doesn't pray for their health or even for their provision. He doesn't pray for a laundry list of prayer requests. Now, to be clear, this isn't wrong to pray for those things. But look at the priority here. He prays that they would know God. That's the most important thing that we could pray for any believer. That's why Paul prays it so often. Philippians 1.9 
He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 10. Paul says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in what? The knowledge of God. But what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? Hear this as clearly as I can say it. There is a huge difference between knowing about God and knowing God. When Paul talks about knowing God, he's talking about relationship. In the Old Testament, the word yada, to know, carries the connotation of intimacy in relationship. And that's what Paul means here. He's not praying that they would have great Bible knowledge for trivia, or even that they would be great theologians. He's praying not just that they would know about God, but that they would truly, deeply know God. Let me give you an example. I know a lot about Michael Jordan. I know his height. He's 6'6". I even know where he grew up and how he grew up. I know where he went to college. I know most of his story. I know about Michael Jordan. But I don't know Michael Jordan. And he certainly doesn't know me. Do you see the difference? And don't don't hear me saying that having a knowledge about God is bad. That's often part of knowing God. To have a relationship with my wife... I have to know about her. But if we, we have all the head knowledge in the world without having relationship with God, we've missed it completely. Knowing God involves mutual relationship that goes both ways. Look at what Jesus prays in John 17, verse 3. John 17, verse 3, Jesus prays, And this is eternal life. That they, speaking of the disciples and us, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, we must know God. But we also must be known by God. Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 through 23. Jesus says, on that day, meaning the last day, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 1 Corinthians 8, 3, Paul says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. We must be known by God, and we must know God. Again, J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, he says this. He says, our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. As he is the subject of our study, and our helper in it, 
So he must himself be the end of it. We must seek in studying God to be led to God. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about him. The most important thing that Paul could pray for the Ephesians was for them to know God. So I ask us, do you ever take time to pray for each other in this way? Again, hear me loud and clear. It is so, so good for us to pray for each other for practical things like health and provision. I'm incredibly encouraged when someone posts something to the church group me and I hear it go bing, 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 bing. So many people praying for one another. I praise God for that. We pray for one another well. Keep that up. But I want to encourage us to start praying for one another in this way. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ that they would know God. So the question is, how do we know God? How do we know God? Paul tells us, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Do you see how these two go together? Spirit of wisdom and of revelation. So often in today's culture, these two actually get pitted against one another. Oh, you must be a Bible guy or a Bible girl. Or, oh, you're a spirit guy or a spirit girl. They pit them against one another. I want you to see that, that scripturally, and even here, Paul makes no such distinction. He regularly pairs spirit and truth. Same here. We know God through revelation. He's revealed himself to us through his word. But it's his spirit who illuminates his word and helps us understand it and live it out. In John 14, verse 26, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Again, John 16, John 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. See how the Spirit and Revelation are connected? That's what Paul's saying here in Ephesians. He's praying that God would give him a spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that they would know God. He continues on in verse 18. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What a great prayer. Remember that the heart in scripture is the core of our spiritual being. Paul's praying that their spiritual center would have clear vision. He's praying for 2020 spiritual vision, that they would see clearly as believers. And again, I want us to see that we need Holy Spirit glasses to not be short-sighted in this. We're often blind to spiritual realities. In Psalm 119, verse 18, 
the psalmist prays this. He says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You see that? You see the humility here? We don't come to the text thinking that we're just smart enough to figure it out on our own. No. We come asking God to open our eyes. We ask for the Spirit to illumine the truth of God's words to us each and every time we open it. Why? So that we might know God. And I want to let us know the truth that God will answer that prayer. He wants us to know him. Isn't that great? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So understand this. The, the Ephesians had come to know God. They had followed Jesus with their lives. But this is a prayer for still even more of that. Never stop growing in your knowledge of God. Pray this for yourself. Pray it for others. That the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Do you believe that that's a prayer that God wants to answer? I do. What would it look like if we started praying this for each other regularly? What if a pandemic of knowing God broke out all over this county and all over this state and all over this country and all over this world? What if the eyes of people's hearts were enlightened to the ends of the earth? Friends, that's possible. And it always, always starts with prayer. Every major spiritual awakening in church history began with prayer, often in small pockets that grew, but it began with prayer. What if we committed ourselves to pray in this way for the church of God? That's exactly what we're going to do in just a minute. We're going to spend time together praying this text for ourselves, for the saints across this county, this state, this country, and this world. So, With that in mind, I'm going to move quickly through the rest of this text to show us exactly what it was that Paul prayed for their spiritual eyes to see. He prayed for three things. First, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Second, that they would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Third, that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Let's walk through each of these. Number one, he prays for them to have their eyes wide open to the hope which God has called them. We talked about this last Sunday. Hope. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. It's about confident expectation of what's ahead. Confident expectation. God has called us as Christians to live with confident expectation, knowing that he's sovereign over all things and has a plan for our lives. We live in a world that simply has no hope. No hope of anything after this life. No hope that 
anything in this life actually matters past this momentary moment. Not so in the Christian life. We have hope in Christ. Even in the midst of the hardest trials, we have hope. Number one, that God won't let us go because he elected and adopted us when? Before the foundation of the world. Two, we have hope that God will see us through. We know that there's no end to the Christian life. One day, Jesus will return and we'll spend eternity with the King of Kings, walking with God, completely satisfied in it. Paul prays that the Ephesians would know that kind of hope. Second, he prays that they would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We talked about this also last week. Grammatically, this could be taken one of two ways again. In inheritance being Christ himself, or the inheritance being us, given to Christ by the Father. Again, both options are gloriously true and clearly present in many texts of Scripture. If Paul is thinking about Christ as the inheritance, he's praying that they would know just how rich they are in Christ. And if Paul's praying about us as Christ's inheritance, he's praying that they would know just how valuable they are to God in Christ. That they would see themselves as God sees them, clothed in Jesus' righteousness and given as a treasure to Christ. So he prays that they would know hope and that they would know these riches. Third, he prays, verse 19, that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Think about how encouraging this must have been for those living in Ephesus. Remember, they lived in an absolute pagan city where the occult was very present and political idolatry was rampant. Those are some pretty powerful things, right? Paul wants them and us this morning to know that God's power is greater than that. Far greater. Greater than Artemis. Greater than Caesar. Greater than all. And look at how he expands this truth. First, he piles on words. The same word using synonyms over and over and over again. He uses the word dunamis, translated power. It's where we get the word dynamite. Energia, translated working. It's where we get the word energy. Kratos, translated great. It's a word that means strength and even dominion. And then iscus, translated might. Paul piles on these words to overemphasize God's power available to all who believe in Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He piles on words, and then he drills down in verses 20 through 23 to explain this power even further. Look with me. He says, according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. I'll stop right there. This, this power that we're given is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power that saved us. Look at how Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? 
power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This resurrection power, it's the power that saves us, but it's also sanctifying power. If, if it's the power that raised Christ from the dead, it's also powerful enough to overcome temptation and to grow us more into Christ's likeness. It's the power to overcome sin. Resurrection power. So that's the first thing he does. But he continues on. And he says, And seated him, meaning Jesus, at his right hand in the heavenly places. This has to do with Jesus' ascension and being seated upon the throne. He's more powerful than all. And he's in the seat of honor. Keep reading. Verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you see Paul's point? The power that we have in Christ as the church, meaning his people, is tremendous. We don't have to walk around scared or with some kind of victim mentality. We have immeasurable power in Christ. Again, what if we actually believed that? What if, what if we actually prayed like we believed that? That's why Paul wants the Ephesians and us to know this truth. So in closing, and to sum all of this up, Paul thanks God for their faith in Jesus and their love for all the saints. He prays that they would know God and that their spiritual eyes would be opened to the hope that they have, to the riches that they have in Christ, and to the power available to all of them as the church. So before we take the Lord's Supper today, we're just going to take the next five to ten minutes and we're going to use this text explicitly as our guide. And we're going to pray for our church. We're going to pray for all the saints here in Santa Cruz. We're going to pray for all the saints in California and in the U.S. and in the nations. I encourage you to pray for these saints by name. And to pray for the same things that Paul prays here in the text. If you feel comfortable praying out loud, we encourage you to do so. But I invite all of you to pray, even if it's just in your heart between you and God. Does that make sense? All right. I'll pray for us, and then we will dive into our time of prayer.